0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This is your host, Charles Maxwood. Before we get started, I want to point out a few changes that have gone on with the podcast. Um, last week was not necessarily Aaron's last week, but he's not going to be a regular panelist on the podcast. We'll have him on whenever he's available, but he's he's busy making Ruby and Rails awesome right now, so uh, we, uh, we told him that he could do that instead. Um, Avdi Grimm will be joining us as a regular panelist, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, he's he's a smart guy, so we're happy to have him. Um, we're gonna go ahead and do the introductions a little bit differently this time. I'm just gonna tell you who the panelists are, and then they're gonna go ahead and tell you what's going on with them. So since Obdi is now our new regular, we'll go ahead and start with him.
1: Hey, um, so I'm Obdi, and uh, I have a uh, I blog about software and Ruby type stuff. Uh, at ovdi.org uh, and uh, i also have a podcast uh about distributed teams at wide teams.com. that
0: is awesome he also wrote an exceptional ruby which is an awesome book uh josh susser okay hey i'm
2: josh uh i'm a co-organizer of the golden gate ruby conference I'm um, currently a stealth entrepreneur, which means you don't get to know what I'm up to, and uh, an old small talker from way back.
0: Yeah, we don't even know what he's up to, so don't ask.
2: Somet- Sometimes I wonder if I know what I'm up to. <laughs> so do we. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and another panelist that we have today is James Edward Gray.
3: Hi, I'm James, and I'm super excited that there could be salt water on Mars. All right.
4: And David Brady. Oh, crap. How am I going to top the saltwater thing? (laughs) Uh, Okay. Hi. I'm David Brady. Uh, I own Shiny Systems. Uh, I blog at heartmindcode.com. And uh, that's me.
0: All right. And I'm Charles Maxwood. I am the host of Teach Me to Code. Teachmetocode.com has a podcast and screencast. And I do a bunch of other stuff in the community. So you can follow me on Twitter if you want to find out what that's all about. All right. So... Today, we're going to be talking about queuing and background processes. Um, it seems like it's a little bit more Rails-focused this week. Um, does Does anyone have anything they want to go ahead and start with?
3: Well, should we just talk about what queue systems we've used in the past?
0: Sounds good to me. Hi, can, can we start with the definition?
3: Sure, go for I, it. I, I always like it when James gives a definition. Wait, Brian, me? You're the one who always asks for the definition. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you got—you got you to learn to step up first. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Wait, so I should ask for work for myself? This is getting confusing. <laughs> okay, uh, definition of queuing and background processing. So queuing is about messaging, right? It's about putting messages in a queue, typically first in, first out. Uh, message system and then pulling them back out and background processing is how queuing is most often used so you're running a rails application you need to do something long and expensive or potentially expensive you throw it in the queue and say do this later and then you have a separate process or something pulling those messages off of the queue and doing it that's my best definition so
0: background processing is kind of like technical debt except it belongs to your app instead of your coders (laughs)
3: Right, and it's immediate.
4: What would have been really awesome is if Josh had asked for the definition of of a queue, and if James had said, okay, and then five minutes later, I had provided the definition of queuing and background processing.
3: That would have been better. We need to rehearse (laughs) that next time.
0: Yeah, well, I'm I'm actually successfully recording this time, so, uh, you know, otherwise I'd I'd work that in. (laughs)
3: Although we did have an amazing pre show this time that I'm still laughing hard about it didn't record.
0: Yeah. Next time I'm just gonna hit record as soon as I make the call and then we can adjust.
3: So Josh, was my definition satisfactory? Sure. (laughs) Sounded
2: good to me.
0: All right. So what what What? systems have people used?
4: Beanstalk.
3: I've used that quite a bit too.
4: I've used uh, RabbitMQ, ZeroMQ, Bunny, which are all basically kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I've used delayed job and BackgroundRB. Mm-hmm. rb,
4: background rb. I'm trying to yep. think.
3: I've used or rescue. Rescue. Er, rescue, sorry, yes. rescue. Yeah,
2: I, yeah, I've used rescue quite a bit. Uh about, you know, delayed job, background
3: job yeah, I used that one too. Uh, it was older system, and I even had a fork of it for a while that I used on one project. I've mm-hmm. also
0: I've also set up cron jobs. I don't know if that qualifies necessarily as the same thing, but
3: sure yeah. it
4: does. Well, wow. let me. I should throw out a definition here as well. Is everybody familiar with the term poor man's queue? Okay, so what's that? Okay, all right. So it's maybe the opposite it's of
0: a rich man's queue.
4: Rich man's queue. It's an op- opposite of a real queue. Um, a poor man's queue is, and this might be just regional slang up here, um, but uh, a poor man's queue is when you set up a database table and you store a record, a job in the table, and then you have something that comes along every minute or so and reads that table to pick up a job and, and dispatch it out. You basically build it in the database um, as basically some persistent data store that's just going to collect uh, a series of sequential data and something that comes along and picks it up. Um, so delay back- job. Delayed, delayed job that's what delayed that's delayed that's job, job background <laughs> background rb are both performance queues, and you can see them if you go look at your rails uh, logs you will see background rb every sec or every well, like 5 seconds or so you can see it querying the jobs table right
3: polling sure polling mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so, so th- <clears throat> go ahead Chuck.
0: well i i have to wonder then you know we have all these different systems what are the trade offs between them you know what's the trade off between say an amqp setup like rabbit versus um, a poor man's queue. Well,
4: a poor crazy. man's poor man's queue is, is trivially easy to set up. They're they're de- they're dead simple. You can understand it just by looking at it. Um, AMQP is a cast iron bitch to set up. I mean, you got to get the right. You got to get Erlang to compile. You got to get the right version of Erlang to compile. Um, then you got to figure out how to start the Erlang server, which is going to involve reading some Erlang crash dumps because you you set it up wrong, um, and you know, you you end up chasing all these things, and then you you have all this, you know, kind of this headache. And then with like with AMQP or with uh, RabbitMQ, you have to set up the actual queuing directions. You know, the, the, there's a uh, you know a fan out, or there's a distribution, or or a sequential point-to-point that you put things in here and take them out here. Where poor man's queue, uh, there's just a table. You just stick it in the table. Somebody will come me along later and read it from the table and, and work the job. And so, uh, with simplicity comes difficulty of scale. Um, you're hitting the database, uh, you're hitting the master database. You have, to, you have to write to the database every time you want to submit a job. Um, and getting a job back out of that queue, you've got to read. Well, that can be done on a read slave, I guess. Um, but you, if you, no, actually, I take it back. If you want to pick up a job, you have to have it write access to the database because you've got to flag that job is picked up and, and somebody's working on it. Don't do poor man's queues. They're a bad idea.
2: Well, I, I, I want to take exception with that. Okay. Because that you, you've described that from the perspective of a particular use case. Sure. And there are, there are plenty of use cases where what you're calling a poor man's queue and what I would call a database-backed queue um, yeah. is perfectly acceptable and it's, it's actually a really good solution for your application. Okay,
4: okay. I, I, I'm, I, I'm willing to accept that poor man's queue is an improper application of a database-backed queue.
2: Yeah, the, but but database back queues uh, are well, like you said, they're they're very simple to set up for the most part, and that it's nice that you don't have to put another piece of technology into your stack. And if your if your volume is low enough, then there's no issue. I mean, you, you yeah. if your database is set up right, then it could be just fine. Now, I, I think the database that you're using. Uh, can have a can have a big impact on what you're doing. The you know, MySQL doesn't have awesome locking uh, functionality, so there can be a lot of overhead with that, and it can take longer than it should. It, yeah. There's um, something that's interesting that I haven't had a chance to try yet, but looks really cool. Is Ryan Smith's Q Classic,
3: which I was is, just uh, going to mention that.
2: I, well, you got to wait in line
0: right <laughs> sorry,
2: sorry
3: I'm queuing up I'm yeah. queuing up
0: yeah, you haven't so, been picked up by the worker yet
2: right yeah so, so I got that lock on the table so yeah so q q classic uses some of the awesome Postgres locking features and uh, pub sub semantics to be able to uh, do the storage for your queue and so go ahead, James <laughs>
3: sorry, I couldn't wait. Um, <laughs> I actually hacked at priority, uh, priority Q, Right, <laughs> I actually hacked on uh, uh, queue classic with Ryan at Red Dirt RubyConf. Um, and we added uh, signal notification to the workers at the hackfest. So I know a little bit about it, and I uh, have been playing with it. And it's kind of an interesting hybrid because um, it's uh, kind of what you guys are calling a database back queue, and there's just jobs in a table. Um, and uh, but as Josh said. It uses uh, Postgres excellent locking uh, to do it. So when you pull a job out, even though it's just a job in a table, you do actually have a lock on that job. Um, and it's very interesting using uh, Postgres locking semantics. And then it does do uh, uh, notifications, Postgres notification system. So you don't have the typical polling, you know, checking every... Uh, so often to do that, a, a worker can sleep and wait for the notification, uh, in which case Postgres will wake it up and say, hey, time to get busy. Um, so it's it's interesting in that it, it kind of sits on the boundary of the two queues, or it's pretty sophisticated, at least, for a database back queue. And um, so I do like it. Um, the interesting thing about you know database back queues is uh, the good point of them, in my opinion, is that... Uh, Getting information about the queue is so easy, right? You just write a SQL query and and oh yeah, these are all the jobs that are currently in this state or whatever, right? So it's and
4: that's a and that's a dangerous trade off too. I was I was just I was you know I'll let you finish. You you've got the priority queue.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just saying that it's easy to get information, but I I pretty much agree with David that you know as as soon as your numbers start to get real, I think database queues start to suffer pretty bad. I mean. Even even if you have really good indexing on, them, you know if if you're moving jobs through at a big rate, then then it's probably not going to work out. But like Josh, said, you know it's uh, uh, you know it's very simple to set up. So if your needs are modest, then sure you can do it. We're gonna... And, and I, ju- I just say
2: in the in your development lifecycle, you probably want to start with a database back queue just because it's simple to set up. And you don't know when you're really going to need the performance from from a high volume queue anyway, Twitter started their queuing with uh, you know, starling. It was this simple little queue system that Blaine wrote in Ruby, and it was really adequate for what they did for a long time and then they eventually had to move off it because it couldn't keep up. but you just start with
4: the simple stuff yeah there's yeah. A, a one good thing to do is that the, J- James mentioned that a, f- a feature of a database back queue is that you can go in and just say hey how many you know select count from the jobs table and you really want to resist the urge to do that because the fact that you can query how many jobs are in the jobs table means that you implicitly have global perspective you can see the whole universe which means all the queue and all the jobs are in one table on one server you um, I found this out the hard way when we were using Amazon's SQS. That's another queuing service that we forgot to mention. Um, that you know we got this queue, and I wanted to know if the queue was backing up, and I wanted to know how much the queue was backing up. And so I went in and you know said, "All right, where's the, where in the API do I ask it how many jobs are in uh, the queue here?" and um, there's no API to do that. There's no way, and and the answer and the reason for that is because the queue is on 17 different servers. Um, a single queue might be on multiple servers. It might go halfway through one server and then uh, and then you know get dropped off, picked up by another server, and then and run through there. Um, uh, we'll talk about reliability later on in the podcast. I hope, um, but once we've once we've got a good grasp on reliability on the fact that you shouldn't ever trust. Your queuing service that you need to be able to allow it to die and go away, then there's a really fast optimization you can do, a really good optimization you can do with a database back queue, uh, especially in low to mid volume, and that's just make the engine uh, for MySQL make it the make it be the in the in-memory engine, and now you basically got you know an in-memory cache.
3: Hmm. Yeah, with the only problem there being if you shove too many jobs in it, then uh, you know it kind of starts to melt down.
4: I, we'll I'm talk gonna... about re- we'll talk about reliability coming up. Yeah. You, de- you should not depend on it. <laughs> I'm I'm curious to hear
1: um, what people think is a uh, what people look for in a queue when they're cho- cho- in a queue system when they're choosing one over another, and I'll I'll throw mine out, which is I think the biggest thing for me uh, is uh, how it handles failure. I mean, the most obvious thing is that it does that the uh, the, the queue server itself doesn't fall over and die when, when one of the jobs uh, fails. Um, but, uh, but beyond that, being able to see which jobs have failed um, to sort of dig into the context of, of where and how they failed and then to be able to say, okay, I fixed this, this, um, I fixed this condition. Now I want to re-queue those, the jobs that have failed. Um, that's a big deal to me.
3: Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely one of the things I care about is being able to uh, um, bump those things. Lately, I, I like a little introspection in my queue. I, I know maybe that's not traditionally a, a big part of it, and, and it's even kind of frowned on in some scenarios, like, like David Brady mentioned. But when I'm looking at problems and stuff, it, I just find that uh, that it's... I don't know. I just love being able to peek inside and see exactly what it's thinking right now. You know, so well. I I used to be primarily a Beanstalk guy. I used to use that uh, almost exclusively, and I, I do really like Beanstalk because it's so simple and stuff. Um, the two problems I've had with it is um, when jobs do get backed up and stuff, and some of them fail, and then you go fix something, and you want to kick them back. It's kind of a pain in the butt if you want to just like re-kick this one job instead of, you know, all of them or something like that and beanstalk's introspection just basically isn't there, you know. So I I really don't like that. So these days I tend to be more of a rescue user just because I like the introspection of the web application that I can just peek inside of.
4: James, have you seen my beanstalk utilities? Nope, probably uh, not. I probably ought to wrap those up in a gem. I, if you if you go out to GitHub.com/slash/debrady/slash/bin or maybe bin files, no, just bin. Um, there's a bs put, bs get, and a bs t- uh, tubes. And the bs tubes will just dump you out a table showing you all of the tubes that are currently in play, how many jobs are ready, how many jobs are are ready to go, how many jobs are uh, you know kicked or you know what's 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 the stat you know buried. That's the word. Um, so I, I recognize that I'm being a total hypocrite. Uh, I, I'm not saying I don't love that stuff. I'm just saying you shouldn't want it. Um, and, but yeah, I totally, you know, with, with Beanstalk, you, you totally want that. And so, yeah.
0: I'm going to jump in here and answer Avdi's question as well. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as far as like which queue or queuing technology I'm going to use, it really depends on what I'm trying to do and, and what it does well and what it makes easy for me so in a lot of cases you know what you're talking about is really all there is because you know all i'm really looking to do is drop some work in there and have it happen have some worker process or something pick it up but uh you know sometimes it it turns out that i need a whole bunch of stuff done across several servers and so i'm going to pick something that you know can fan out the the server or you know has some library that allows me to do that versus you know, something that, you know, is just a queuing technology and, you know, yeah. I, I have to write my own workers that come and check the queue and, you know, I have to manage all of the consistency myself. Uh, the other thing that I, ha- I usually consider is uh, in the case of when I need something to happen like every 10 minutes or every hour or something. I mean, this is why I brought up Cron is because it's built into Unix. It's been around for freaking ever. It works like a charm. And so all I have to do is set up a rake task and then tell Cron to call it. And so depending on what problem I'm trying to solve and what kinds of things I'm trying to make happen, I may choose one feature over another. Does that make sense?
4: Absolutely. Um, When I worked at uh, Podango, we had to process had to take uh podcasts and we had to stitch audio ads on the beginning and the end of the podcast and this involves ripping the mp3 apart and mixing in uh you know new ads every week or every night and we had to process the entire inventory overnight and so this was a nightly cron job and we we would shard it off across a hundred different workers to to go through um on on the other side it was either i'm going to get the name wrong it was either um it was either Ryan Bates or it was uh, Greg uh, uh, Jeff uh, Grossenbach that did the Beanstalk uh, screencast, and he talks about how on his blog he wanted to uh, process all new posts through Akismet to see if they were spam, and he wanted to do it asynchronously, but he wanted it done as fast as possible, and so he used that with Beanstalk in just as in a as fast as he could, and he actually found out that. Um, the Beanstalk worker could actually take the job off the queue, send it off to a kismet, get it back, find out that it's ham, not spam, so it's valid, save it in the database and approve it before the user's page had finished loading, and so they would actually click submit on their post, and the web server would grind and grind and grind for three to five seconds, and the page would load, and their comment would be there, and it would be approved. So yeah, two totally different use cases. Mm
0: -hmm. That makes sense.
3: I I think Cron is definitely a valid tool. It's very useful, and I do use it as part of most of my workflows, if I want to, you know, kick something in on the service regularly, then I wouldn't necessarily kick in jobs into the queue and run them that way. I usually just run them through Cron. Um, you do have to be aware of some things though, There, like, for example, Cron will just happily file fire up multiple copies of the same process though, right, so like, mm-hmm. if if, you know, if you have a job that's taking a long time and you're running it every hour, you know, once you go over that hour mark, another one will kick in and start working while the other one's still already there and working. You know, so yeah. you do need to stay aware of stuff like that. Yeah. So, Your, so I, first so thing I, you're tasked I,
4: to do is check to see if it's already running and shut itself down.
0: Yeah, but either way, you you have to be aware of these trade-offs. Go ahead, Josh. Yes. Or Abdi. Right.
4: This
2: is Josh. So okay. I, I have a a weird uh, Frankenstein example. Uh, or a mutant creature, I don't know. The, so so I've, I've built stuff that was a combination of a queue system and a cron job. So, so uh, my particular example had to do with geocoding, and we were using, uh, you know, a well-known uh, provider's API. Can I say Google? The, <laughs> we're, we're, to do geocoding. Bleep that! Bleep that! And, they, back, <laughs> they, and, and the, uh, the API was rate-limited, so we had a whole bunch of, of data points to geocode. So we built a system that used a queue. It queued up all of the work that we had to do, and we were incrementally adding to it. So, but we had a cron job that would wake up every so often and do some of the geocoding, pull, you know, pulling the items off the work queue. So, But we were using the cron job to rate limit it. So it, there are there are plenty of situations, I think, where you... Want to be feeding the queue from your application, but pulling things off at a at a uniform rate because you yeah. have sort of rate limited thing right.
3: going on. Yeah, I have um, I have pretty much a similar scenario right now with a kind of complicated payment system where I'm using Amazon's FPS, and I don't know if you've uh, used it, but FPS is so weird and it's kind of this uh, layered payment system, and it, I kind of think of it as circles of hell. And it's how far down you need to go for the specific feature you want. And luckily, the only feature I needed is on the very bottom circle of hell. So I had to go all the way through all the circles. So, so did Satan
0: put you in his mouth and chew?
3: It, it was bad. <laughs> yes, and uh, I deserve that for the doll comment last time, right? <laughs> if, um,
0: if you if you haven't read Inferno, the the lowest level of hell, Satan's there, and he has. Judas and two other people in his three mouths, and he's chewing them
4: forever. Nice.
3: nice. Well, what if a the fourth they,
4: person shows up? Do they have the timeshare? <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, anyways, I I queue these jobs, these payments. But the way FPS works is submitting a payment is you know almost a no-op. It it doesn't really do much. You just say here, do this, and then it's like okay, I will. And then you you need to have you need to basically. DOS Amazon to find out what happened to your payment. Um, <laughs> so, uh, anyways, I, I queue them all up and just fire them off. So, I have a queue from the application. I, I enter into the queue, and then I have a worker that all it does is pull them off and throw them at Amazon, and that's it. And then I have a cron job that kicks in uh, about every hour and goes through and, and does updates on all the payments that don't have any kind of a final status yet. So, like trying to figure out what's going on with them. So yeah, there's definitely, I think, you know, hybrid approaches and, and, uh, things you need to do that way. Mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, kind of interested I, in, oh, go ahead.
3: No, go ahead, Avi.
1: I'm kind of interested in, like, what are some good, um, like, best practices or better practices for working with queues. Um, I, uh, I have one that I can start with, uh, which was kind of hard-won knowledge, which is, if at all possible, structure your jobs so that they are simple input-output processes where all of the input that they need is in the message, in the queue, and then they... they, and then they put their output one, somewhere, whether they either they put the output on, a, on another queue or they, they drop it into a database table, which is, from their perspective, write only. Um, but there isn't a lot of back and forth uh, between a database and the job once it's running. And that has a ton of advantages. It's, it's easier to test. Um, if, you, if you decide you want to move to a different queuing system, it's usually a lot easier to make that move. Um, and it's way way easier to debug failures in the jobs if they're just simple input output machines.
2: Right. You so also- so I want to so I, 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 I want to expand on that just a little bit because I mean that's a that's a great point. But the the loading up the job with the data I think is, is is could use a little clarification. I've done this before where you get a job and you say I need to email a user. So what you put in the jo- in the job record is the user ID and then you fire up the worker and the first thing the worker has to do is it looks at the user ID and then it goes and gets the user record and pulls all the data out of that record
3: and you've already screwed up
1: right yeah that's not what I'm talking about now I mean there are there are certain cases where you can't get away from referencing something else if if if, you know if you're processing a uh, a big old video file or something like that it, it probably doesn't make sense to stick the file in your queue you know you're going to have to stick a reference to it somewhere but uh but yeah not just like a user id but actually serialize that user out along with any other data that it's going to use and uh and have it not not touch not try to drag that stuff in the, the oh yeah the other advantage that i forgot about is um i've seen systems where the queuing you know they went to queuing for for per, uh for performance reasons and it wasn't helping because the the jobs were running into the same database bottleneck that you know that the inline you know page processing was running into. hmm
3: Yeah. So that's a that's an excellent point. I think I can give a good example of it. We did um, Go versus Go for the last year's Rails Rumble. I worked on that with Ryan Bates. And um, so what, what we're doing there is you're making moves on a Go board and then we need to go to GNU Go in the background and get your uh, get the computer's response if you're playing against a computer player and so um, we did exactly what Avdi said when we when we push the job in instead of just passing like game ID or something like that we actually pass all the criteria you would need so here's the position here's whose move it is blah 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 we cue that and then when it gets the job, it just goes straight to GNU Go. No no query with the database needed. Um, it goes straight to GNU Go and says, please generate a move for this scenario. And then it packages up the one query to shove that back in the database. And we did that in such a way that the query, uh, as it updates, it will only update if certain conditions are met, right? There's a where clause on it that says, you know, if it's still this move for this player kind of setup, then here's that move, right? So Mm -hmm. that way, even if something goes weird, gets out of whack, that one query gets issued, instead of us doing something like, well, is it still his move? Okay, let's go ahead and do it and all that. We don't want to chat with the database at all because in Go versus Go, we need to move very fast. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that case, we actually don't load the uh, the Rails environment and stuff. We needed to be pretty lean, so we just load a, a database driver and do the do the query manually. We only have to execute that one query, uh, and it really turned out to be a massive win. We used Beanstalk and and uh, like I said, the database driver for the one query, and and uh, did that. Uh, so it was a great example, and and that's what we did.
4: I find a, a, just a wonderful parallel between this and just solid uh, programming design. You remember, remember when we all learned that if at all possible, the you remember gazintas and gazatas? You know, what goes into the function and then what goes out of the function? Um, all the gazintas, if possible, should be the parameters to the function. There should be no inputs to the function if at all possible if you have to go ahead and use an instance variable on that object if you have to go ahead and access the the database if you have to go ahead and access a singleton if you have to god help you access a global variable but if at all possible your gazintas should be the parameters to that function, and the gazadas are the same way. Don't write to the database. Don't write to an instance variable. Don't mutate state. Just whatever you know, one, whatever your return value is. And queuing kind of has the same thing. If at all possible, what you send into the function is the arguments, or in, send into the worker are the arguments that it has to work with, and what it puts on an output queue. Or if it's a if it's a terminal uh, worker that just it writes its output and it's done, then it, whatever its side effect is, its output. I love the, the the similarity in that because the motivations for breaking those rules are very similar in 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 both cases. Um, we're we're processing PDFs here, and um, they're big documents, and they're in a uh, a store that has to be validated and verified by like an auditing process, and I mean like actual capital A auditors. Like like there's another department in the building that has to come audit you know to make sure these because con- they're contracts. And, okay, um, you know what, this worker is going to have to talk to the document store. There's just no way around it. He can't, you know, he's going to have a side effect. Um, But, okay, all right, in order to test that, then whenever we bring up this worker, we have to change where he thinks the the document store is. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of make sense?
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that that um, bothers me a bit about things like delayed job and background RB is that um, they're kind of classic leaky abstractions where they 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 yeah. try to make it look like oh it's you're just it's just like calling a method it's going to be just like calling a method except you're going to yeah. be calling it in it's going to you know become in the background magically yeah. um, and and Rails I mean Rails code in general has a lot of external input or has a lot of of um, a lot of inputs besides for the direct inputs to, the, to methods. Yeah. And um, and so I see a lot of systems where where it's just you know the the jobs are tremendously coupled to the Rails application and to the mm-hmm. database. Um, and you know they do a whole lot of talking back and forth because of this attempt to make an abstraction where where probably it's a little too leaky. You know, it's like that classic RPC le- leaky abstraction where mm-hmm. you know seriously we're making a met- trying to make a method call across a flaky network link we can't really pretend that that's like a normal method call we right. just have to you know bite the bullet and say this is something different from a method call it's it's message passing which is sort of the thing that that all the folks that were doing rpc figured out and 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 started moving towards messaging systems rather than rpc systems
4: that's actually uh my, the the best practice that that i wanted to contribute to 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 this particular around the horn um, which is that as you move to a distributed to a message passing archi- me- message a message passing architecture or a distributed architecture, the first thing you have to get just hammered through your skull is distributed equals not dependent. If you if you put a job on the queue and that job dies or it breaks or it's mishandled, if you are now broken or if you have lost that job, um, you you design you're designed wrong. You, when you give that job away, um, it needs to be fire and forget. Um, this, it needs to be fault tolerant, um, because even having a big queue like AMQP or uh, you know ZeroMQ or one of the big Erlang ones, they'll run away from you. And sometimes the only way to you know to get the server's attention is to pull the cord out of the back of it. And now you've just lost all of those jobs. Well, have you just lost? Have you lost leads out of your database? Have you lost business? Have you lost money? Because there was something critical in that queue, um, if there was, you did not design a fault-tolerant system. You did not really design a truly distributed system. You designed a big ass RPC with that this thing is waiting on this really flaky and really untrustworthy system to eventually maybe come back and say, "Oh, here's your job. I'm finally done with this, and now you can be sane again. You can you have completed your job, and your and your work goes." Um, so. My best practice that I've come across, and this isn't perfect in every case, um, and it's also got its trade-offs, but I I basically say, I try to strive for a rule that basically says the queue is never, ever allowed to be authoritative. Um, If I am in charge of getting some work done, and I'm going to use a queue to do it, I set up the job, and I give it to a queue, and... Um, the worker goes off and it does its thing. But I still think I own that job and I'm responsible for getting it done. And if enough time goes by and I haven't heard back from that queue, I'm going to send off another – I'm going to put it on the queue again. I'm going to send off another worker to go do it. Um, now, the the danger or the, the trick to, to this is you have to have idempotence on the workers. If a worker finishes a job, he has to – Either check the database to see is this job already done? Oh, it is. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna die. I'm just gonna throw myself on the floor. I was too slow. You know, curse my metal body. I was too slow. Um, but if the. If the first job if, if the first job finishes and he looks at the job and he says oh look it's not done okay cool locking the table uh, yep it's not done I'm marking it done I'm done all right you can see there's a there's a problem with resource hogging there that I'm locking a database table to ensure um, that this work has been done but the advantage of this now is that if your if your queue server blows up if the colo blows a transformer up and your server goes away like happened at Rackspace back in 2009 then um, you know, if, if shit happens, um, no big deal. Just go through, just tell your you know, tell your system, hey, any jobs that aren't done, start them over. And it doesn't matter. You can start them 100 times. And, okay, your workers are going to be really busy and you're going to burn up a lot of CPU time. But whoever finishes that job first is going to mark it finished. And when the late workers finish and show up, then they'll say, oh, well, okay, we're done.
0: Is there, a si- there- is there a system out there that does that, Dave? Uh,
4: no, no well uh yeah, uh the system that we built at public engines, you and I mm. uh, is built to do that for the the geocoding and the processing of the crime data right yep.
0: I, I was i guess aiming for a little more public project no,
4: I don't know if anybody sane has done it no
3: well a lot of a lot of queues have you know um uh Beanstar, for example, has where you can you know reserve the job and then uh, work on it and then you know mark it as done or or yep. uh, it, it automatically goes back into the queue yeah But I, I, which is a part of what you were talking about right. and not the whole thing right. um, if you look
4: at Beanstalk's documentation though there's a caveat in there that says even if you turn on persistent logging now you have to set a variable that says how often do i flush to disk if i get shot in the head um, and I'm set to flush to disk every 500 milliseconds, the last 500 milliseconds of jobs are gone. Right. They were not flushed to disk. And you can set it to zero, um, but even still, if you're writing your code naively and you're just expecting Beanstalk to accept the job, it is possible for your code to try and hand off a job and Beanstalk to, to die while accepting that job, and it never got flushed to disk. And and you know if that's a... If that's a $5,000 sale, you know, credit card process, um, your accountants can have heartburn over that.
3: Yeah, I, I very much agree with what Dave's been saying. I, I think I'd like to add to it just a little. Whenever I'm using a messaging queue, I think state machine. So I put a entry in my database and it's in some state. And so I yep. make sure I get yep. it in the database and it's in some state. Then I know, hey, okay, I'm here. I've got it. We're good. You know. At that point, after it's in the database and I know it's in some state, I kick it to a queue, right? And that's another state. It's it's waiting to whatever, right, Some something. And then the queue, when it's done its work, its job is to set things the way they need to be and transition to another state, meaning done, right? Mm-hmm. And I, this job has been completed and that's taken care of. And um, and then, I, I, like Dave, I, I always try to design Where if somebody fires a machine gun into the computer that has my queue on it, I don't even care. You know, it it shouldn't affect me if at all possible. There's some cases where that's very difficult to do, but um, but uh, I want to make it where the queue isn't important to me. And generally, when I'm whenever I'm building a queue, I also add the rake tasks that let me go in there and say, okay, re all pending payments or whatever, yep. you know, so that whenever something goes wrong, I just go in there, fire that one right task, and I don't care anymore, you know, that it went through, it found all the pending ones and threw them back on the queue. And then uh, another thing I'd like to do, just to take that one step further, I usually like to think, what's the reasonable amount of time I would expect something like this to sit in the queue? or Or, you know, how many times would I expect this to queue up? I usually double that number and then write a cron job that goes through and anything that's been in that state double the longer, the reasonable amount of time I thought of. I want to get an email about it. I want to know what happened.
4: Um, James, you and I are on exactly the same wavelength. We called it the janitor process. The janitor ran every night, and if he found anything that was unprocessed, he threw it back on the queue. He said, well, this needs to be put. be cleaned up. But then he sent a message to management saying, did you know I had to clean up this job?
3: Right. I really, um, I really think I can't stress enough to start with, I, I try to design my systems where when they get into some scenario I didn't imagine, the first thing they do is throw themselves in some kind of error state and start begging for help, mm-hmm. right? Because the problem with a queue is it all happens in the background while nobody's watching. So I I tend to miss things, you know, oh, I never counted on the fact that that would go wrong, I didn't think about that happening. So usually I find if I can get them in that state immediately, you know, especially if it's an intermittent failure of some kind, if I can get them into that state and then get me looking into it while maybe the failure is still happening, it mm-hmm. helps me figure out what's going wrong and what I didn't think of.
4: Yeah. Right. Now I've I've never had to do this with a queue, but I, it now occurs to me that if you have a that it might be valuable also to notice how many times a job has been shot down the queue, and if it never, you know, if it's been shot down the queue fifty three times and it's never come back, um, there's something there's a unit test there that needs to be written. You've got a job that cannot be finished.
0: All right. I, I want to jump in here. I I want to. Uh, kind of change tracks here for a second Um, because I know that some people are wondering, well, what do you use these background processes for? And we've talked about Mm. payment processing and emails, and Mm. and I know that there are a myriad of other things that we've used them for. What kinds of stuff have you guys been, uh, have you used them for?
2: Okay, Uh, PDF generation, um, the uh, billing reconciliation, uh, geocoding stuff, uh, sending emails.
3: So I would expand on geocoding stuff to be basically anything you need to hit an external web service for should almost always be done in the background, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the the other one you said, sending email. Um, this is, this one's interesting to me because it seems like everybody says, yeah, you should put that in the queue or whatever. I actually don't agree that that should be in like Beanstalk or something like that. Uh, SendMail is an email sending queue, and it works great (laughs) with failover and all kinds of stuff. So uh, what you really need to do is set up your box correctly and and let SendMail take care of that like it's supposed to. Well, (laughs)
2: well, okay, so you you can't do that all the time, especially if you're running on um, an EC2-based cloud system because you can't run SendMail on your box there. So you, you usually use something like SendGrid or what have you to you know is it an external service that sends your mail and that's a good
3: point.
2: Yeah, so then you're back wait, to you can't use sendmail. No, you can't do sendmail out of EC2. What? Uh, what? Wait a second.
1: What? Wait, what? Cuz I mean, I'm I'm thinking back to, to my like devor days when we were running running everything in um in the cloud and uh and I remember transitioning from doing direct SMTP sends uh to using the the built-in um you know, post fix or whatever it was on all the boxes.
4: Let me let me just put the question back to Josh. Why not? Is that like blocked by policy? Are they trying to shut yeah. down spammers?
2: Yeah, it's an anti-spam provision, and oh, okay. And, okay. and I I don't know all the details of it, but I know I've never been able to do it. And mm-hmm. and Amazon even rolled out a product earlier this year to do mailing from their cloud servers.
3: Right, but SendGrid still bang. I, I I like SendGrid.
2: It's pretty good. Uh, yeah. The so. so um, so, so, yeah, I, th- I I think you're right, James, that if you can do send mail on your machine and the latency is nice and low, that's fine. The-
0: yeah, that that's what I was going to point out is that, you know, if you're making round trips to your email server and you're sending out more than one or two emails, you're, you're going to have a slowdown. Um, I had a project that I was working on for a client, and uh, basically what would happen is if, if somebody commented on uh, an article on their website, then everybody else who had commented was supposed to get an email. So-and-so said this on this article. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was one article that got a ton of traffic and a ton of comments. And after a while, it was literally taking like four or five seconds for it to send out all the emails. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, so we, we wound up backgrounding that, that thing because... Otherwise, it would just take too long, and people would actually put the same comment in again because they didn't—they didn't know yeah. that the system had already accepted it. So
4: yeah, you had a flash mob on your server. Yeah. So sendmail—I I, want to say it just uses flat files on the disk. So writing an email to the database is almost certainly going to take longer than it is to give it to sendmail. Um, on the other hand, however, if you if you flash bomb uh, the mail server, you run into problems like. Uh, the Linux file system you know running out of space or the disk quota for the sendmail mail user and that kind of thing but eh, that's technical stuff who cares right yeah well I,
0: I think it just comes back to a lot of what we're talking about in that uh, we have this trade off right if something can be done quickly serially yeah. in our app then that's what we do. But Ooh. if the trade-off is, gee, this takes way too long, or this process really shouldn't worry about whether or not this other stuff is going on, that then we, then we push it off to the background process because the trade-offs are worth it. And Ooh. it's the same thing when we're choosing our, our, our background processor or our queue system or whatever, or writing our workers is we're making decisions as far as the trade-offs in how we handle the, the, pro- the processes or the, the jobs that we're getting. and, you know, how they behave and how fault tolerant we need to be and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. We're making trade-offs in, in the amount of work we do and in the way that it's all handled so that it, it meets our needs. So I've got a weird
4: question.
2: Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, 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 have, one, I have one more uh, use case that I want to add. Um, that, and that's uh, you can use a queue to uh, collate or collapse, combine um, a number of events into an aggregate event.
4: Yeah.
2: Uh, so, so like, if you're on Facebook and you do a, a status update, and then five of your friends comment on it, you don't want to get five. Yeah. You know, all of within a minute, you don't want to get five emails saying, you know, all these different people commented. You want to wait a couple minutes and then send an email saying, oh, the so so, you know, a, a, B, and C all commented on your post. Yep. And so it's great that you can go and say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something in the queue, and then you know when it comes out of the queue a minute later, I'll go and I'll send out something that combines all of that information.
4: That is interesting because mm-hmm. the example I was going to give is actually that example, only run backwards in time, um, which is, we've, we've talked a lot about queues. You want to use a queue anytime stuff is going to be too slow. You also want to use a queue when using a, a queue will make things go much, much faster. Um, you, you know, And by that, what I mean is, um, let's say you go and you update your status on your web service, and this needs to update Twitter, it needs to update Facebook, it needs to update Google+. And if you do these sequentially, you've got to wait for all three of these services to come back. But if you throw it on a worker queue and give it to some supervisor process, he's going to farm it out to three separate queues, a Twitter queue, a Facebook queue, and a Google+, queue. And they're all going to run. And so basically, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, threading is hard. Let's use queues. Um, God help you if you really think that's a, a smart solution to the threading problem. But um, if if you want to get out of process and get onto multiple servers, um, this makes it so that if Twitter's down again, you can get posted to Facebook and Google Plus right away. And your response came back immediately because as soon as the supervisor accepted the job to post to all three services, your web page is done. You know, you're know, you like, okay, good, yep, yeah, we've sent your message. Okay, so, okay, so when, go ahead,
2: Josh. So when does doing uh queue you know queue worker processes that you know take a, take their input off of a queue and put their output on another queue and then someone else does that that when does that turn into map reduce
3: That's a that's a good question maybe a whole other episode yeah yeah, <laughs>
4: that's, a, yeah.
3: that's a good question it's um, it's a
4: good that, argument that there's a good argument that that is the definition of map
3: of map yeah, yeah. i i have done um, some of that kind of pipeline processing before And I just wanted to speak to David's point about uh, splitting up into the multiple workers. Like, I had a scenario where I needed one worker that needed a very specialized piece of software, and it only ran in Java. So I just put that worker on a different server that ran JRuby, and then I used (laughs) JRuby's ability to call into Java and get done what I needed done. Use queue
4: because I need a different Ruby. That's right, brilliant.
3: just so just so I could put it somewhere else and I wouldn't have to worry. And and that, that server had very specific install requirements. You know, That was a bunch of pain I didn't want to deal with in my normal app server and stuff, so it let me just separate it out. I've totally done that too.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's we a great a, trick. We have a PDF. The, the contracts are, when the customer fills them out, um, we fill in all the fields. We built a, a dynamic form-filled PDF, and we're using the iText libraries, which are Java-based. But our Ruby app is uh, is MRI 19 and that's not JRuby. And so, yeah, we 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 do the same thing. We send this off to a contract signing service, and that's all running on under JRuby. And it flattens uses the Java libraries, and it flattens the contract, and digitally signs it, and puts it in the document store, and then goes back to the you know the the, the MRI app, and then say, oh yeah, look, it's done.
0: Okay, well, I'm I'm gonna wrap it up there. We we need to get onto the picks, um, just real quick. If you're if you're a new listener, the picks are basically anything that we have uh, that we want to recommend that we like or that we've used. Um, it can be anything from uh, you know technical stuff that makes our workflow easier to you know I mean we've had TV shows and movies, Legos, toys, any any kind of thing like that uh, picked as well. So uh, let's go ahead and start with Dave. Dave, what's your pick this week?
4: Um, are we doing one or two picks today? You
0: can do as many as you want.
4: I'm going to do two picks, um, and they're both books this time. Uh, the first one, which is relevant to our interests, is Service-Oriented Design in Ruby and Rails um, by uh, Paul Dix, and you can get that at Amazon for about 35 bucks. And it's absolutely brilliant. He does not adhere to a specific, like religious, you know, restful interaction versus true SOA. Yada yada yada. He basically says, No, you know what? Here's the corners you can cut. Here's why you shouldn't cut them. But here's when you should, and here's how we're going to do it. Um, it's a fantastic book. It's uh, it's uh, from Addison Wesley, so it's a red and black book. Um, and I'm enjoying that immensely, and I'm getting a lot of really, really good ideas about it. A uh, great idea about it is that uh, if you if you if you need to map or reduce or have a composite job, you should have a supervisor worker. Uh, who does no work other than supervise other workers? And if you have a worker worker, he should not be supervising anything. And so he ends up building a nice tree where there is no data stored in the upper nodes, but all the everything is done down on the work. Uh, uh, all everything is done down on the work leaf nodes. So that's my first pick. Uh, my second pick is uh, I just it was just kind of a an ADD inspired purchase. I was at the bookstore buying a different book, and I happened to see Enchantment. By Guy Kawasaki, and it's a book on uh, uh, the subtitle is "Changing the Art of Changing Hearts, Minds, and Actions," and it's a fantastic book on basically how not to be an asshole. Um, he uh, he talks about kind of what enchantment is, what it means to you know g- kind of get motivated, how to get people to, and uh, and he gives you know re- really obvious things like um, you know be accepting of others, don't judge other people's values. Um, and then he has really, um, you know, some controversial and interesting or, uh, advice. He, he gives three pages on, uh, on the advice. He says you should swear. And I, I don't like to swear. I try not to swear. Um, but he gives three pages on when to swear and how to swear. And uh, as a way of increasing the amount of persuasion, persuadability, uh, that you use in a room. And, I, and, uh, I, I don't want to call out the entire book based on just that one thing, but I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, the whole book is basically just how to get people engaged and involved and get them to want to work with you. And that's my other pick.
0: All right. Sounds good. Um, let's go ahead and have Avdi go next.
1: All right. So, um, see. First of all, uh, there's an article that uh, just – uh, just came out on the Thoughtbot blog, the Giant Robots blog, uh, by Joe Ferris, uh, entitled "If you gaze into nil, nil gazes also into you." Uh, and this is this is making the, was making the rounds a bit today, but I, I really liked it. Um, it's uh, if anybody's seen one of my talks, you know that uh, that I'm I'm big on eliminating nil wherever you find it, and uh, and replacing it with something uh, more meaningful than nil. And so he gives, goes through an, several techniques for replacing nil with something more meaningful and useful. And uh, I completely endorse all the uh, the techniques that he goes over. Um, another thing that uh, that I've been getting some value from um, I don't I don't read Hacker News, uh, but there's this uh, there's a service called Hacker Monthly uh, where they take uh, a few of the top stories from Hacker News over the course of a month. And they format them really nicely and put them together into a a PDF magazine format, you know, just like four or five articles. and um, And they also publish it in like in in epub and and Mobi and stuff like that. And um, it's a nice read and and it's usually pretty good picks. so um, that's a nice way of of going over some of the top articles in computer in in programming over the past month.
0: All right. That sounds really interesting. I there there are a lot of aggregators like that that uh, I would like to read up more on, and Hacker News is one of them. But I just don't have time. So that that sounds pretty nice. Um, Josh, go ahead.
2: All right. Okay. So I think it's been mentioned on the podcast before in passing, but not as a pick. But I want to put on a plug for rubythere.com. dot um, and that's a. Uh, a site about Ruby regional conferences, Ruby conferences, and it talks about what conferences are coming up and also which conferences have open CFPs or calls for participation. So if you want to speak at a conference, it's a good place to go and find out where you can submit your proposals to speak. Um, So want to go to a conference, want to speak at a conference, rubythere.com. I, del- I looked at it a few minutes ago and the site was was da- and down, so I hope it's back soon <laughs> by the time my pick comes up. Uh, okay, so that's one. The other one is Code for America. And this is, um, this Code for America is a, kind of a public service organization. It's uh, programmers doing projects that contribute to the civic good. And they have things around uh, visibility of government information, transforming how people vote, uh, education system improvements, things about uh, just uh, you know, c- uh, city governments, things like that. So, codeforamerica.org. And <clears throat> the Code for America has these fellowship programs where you can go and work for them for a year and get paid uh, a reasonable amount of money to do something that contributes to the civic good. And they also have, uh, you know, their projects are open source and many of them are being done in Rails or Ruby, uh, some in Python, other languages. But, so they have these projects and you can actually get involved and contribute to the projects without having to stop your life for a year and go be a fellow uh, working for them. And that's a, so there's plenty of ways that you can contribute uh, just as part of your ordinary open source hacking. So that's codeforamerica.org
0: was code for America the organization that was on the change log podcast last week?
2: yes, it was oh it was i didn't, I haven't even read that, cha- that or heard that podcast yet I, yeah. uh, there yeah. hasn't been a change log podcast in so many weeks. I had given up on it
0: <laughs> yeah they they had a quite a good discussion it kind of made you think about getting involved so uh Oh wow! Damn! Stole my thunder. Oh,
2: well. <laughs> well, it's it's. I, I don't mind backing them up on that. It's still a it's still a good uh, organization to check out, and encourage people to get involved.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, James, go ahead.
3: So uh, first, I just wanted to add an extra recommendation for that article Opti mentioned. Um, that's like one of those uh, big things that like. You know, you have all these things in computing when you feel like you uh, level up as soon as you learn it. You know, you get the extra experience and you go up a level. Um, And uh, for me, the learning that nil was like usually an extra case you don't need was definitely one of those scenarios. Like some of my favorite examples to look are like you'll find methods where they either return nil or they return an array of elements to operate on, right? Mm -hmm. And so usually in that method, you have like an if else, you know, if there's nothing, then return nil, else return this array of objects. And then if you go look at the code that calls that, it usually has an if else. And it's like, if it returns nil, then I need to do this, or uh, otherwise I got the array and I'll operate on all these elements. And it turns out if you just go in and remove the, nil part in the first method you can also remove the nil part in the next method most of the time in that you know if you just return an array of elements that you need to operate on and remember that that array may be empty so you get an empty array and you operate on nothing and nothing and nothing is nothing so you know it generally just turns out you don't even need the special case so for me that was one of those areas where I felt like I leveled up in I read that article after Avdi uh, tweeted about it earlier today, and it is a great article, so you should you should go check that out. I agree. And I had to do that because I'm going to recommend some non-code stuff. So, you know, that's me. I always recommend non-code <laughs> stuff, right? So that's because... Um, maybe this is an aside. I should probably shut up now. Um, the uh, I always find, like, um, the non-programming side of our lives is interesting. Like, for example... If you are a programmer and that's all you know, then you really don't know anything, right? Programming is useless by itself. Uh-huh. It's only when you combine yeah. it with other knowledges in other yes. areas does it become a significant skill, right?
4: Hands I down, mean, the best programmers I've ever worked with are guys who had physics or engineering degrees and then learned to program so that they could apply their physics and engineering knowledge. Right, to a exactly. Computer. It's
3: like if, if oh, all Dave. you know is. If all you know is programming, I mean, what are you going to do? There's only so many text editors you can build, right? So, And they've all been built already. Um, So anyways, uh, my recommendations this week are for philosophy. I have a bunch of friends who are into philosophy and they're always nagging me because I'm like the philosophy idiot. Um, I'll confess that I used to find it very boring and semantic, so I, uh, I used to get totally turned off with those arguments. So I've been on, like, the eternal search for years to find uh, sources of uh, learning philosophy that I could stomach down, and I have finally found two that I, I am enjoying. Um, so my recommendations are, uh, first, the book is uh, The Philosophy Gem, G-Y-M, and it's by Stephen Law, and it's basically just 25 thought experiments is how I would describe it. So, you know, they give you a chapter, and it's like, so you're sitting there on the couch, you're doing your thing, and an alien pops into your head and says, oh, by the way, I just thought you should know, you're not really there on Earth anymore. You're actually a brain in a vat in my laboratory, and I'll prove it to you, and, you know, how does that affect your world kind of thing? Hmm. Uh, And and it, you know, talks around the different issues and stuff like that. So I, I find it very easy to get into. Like, I go to sleep as soon as I start reading definitions about moral relativism and stuff like that but this book does it in a much more digestible way so i've been enjoying that a lot and then uh the podcast is uh philosophy bites uh, which is a similar thing it's a like a it's generally about a 12 minute podcast uh where they go through one topic so uh, one i listened to just yesterday i think it was was on animal rights and using animals in our food and what are the moral implications of that and stuff like that. So uh, it's simple, it's sweet, it's short, and and usually enough that I don't lose interest in it. There are definitely some episodes I've found boring. There are a bunch of kind of stuffy English guys, so uh, sometimes they get a little hung up on what did Plato think of Socrates' version of, yeah, whatever. It, it can get kind of boring. But um, look through the episode list, and you'll you'll be able to pretty much tell the ones that, if you can follow the logic in the title. Then it's probably something that'll be worth listening to. You know, but those are my recommendations. Those are what have finally turned me on to philosophy.
0: All right, very yeah, cool. Yeah, very nice. So, um, my picks. My first pick is actually a, a podcast. It's it's a series of videos. It's called Ask a Ninja. I don't know if you guys have. <laughs> I watch that at all. It is hilarious. It, it is just funny. And, uh, I've, I've really, really been enjoying it. Uh, every time they put out a new video, I just, I just wind up laughing my head off. And so, uh, that that's one pick that I have. And, uh, the other pick that I have is Ruby one dot nine. And, uh, I have to admit that I've been lazy and I just kind of left everything on on Ruby 1 8 forever and ever. And uh, I discovered that you can do RVM use 1.9.2 dash. I think the latest stable release according to Ruby is 290 yep. and uh, so I you know I did a RVM install and then an RVM use and then I did dash dash default. And so now my default Ruby is Ruby 1.9. The, the other thing that's nice about um, RVM is then you don't have to do the, when you do your gem installs, you don't have to run sudo. And I've been using gem sets for all of my, um, so I guess this is a pick for RVM as well, because I've been using gem sets for all of my projects. But uh, the other nice thing is it just turns out that a lot of the stuff that I would have to include or, you know, need by default in dot. Dot seven as a gem is already in the the core um, for ruby 1.9.2 and the most recent example of that is actually faster csv thanks James um, and uh, I had to do a csv import for a client and I went and I installed faster csv and then I got the error message and uninstalled faster csv <laughs> and uh, you know figured out that you know, it was already there and that I could already use it which I kind of knew but I didn't know how to get to it until I did a little bit of Google work but um, it's it's been really nice and it's a lot faster and uh, there are just some excellent features in there that I'm starting to get to know a little bit better So I had
4: a production server break and a customer call me because I used faster CSV and I upgraded it to Ruby 1.9 so thanks James um, you can turn that right back around on me and say why didn't you have a unit test on that so you know, I'm the idiot here. Yep. <laughs> All yeah, right. Just silence. Yep.
3: <laughs> I hope. No comment. Yep.
0: Yeah, Dave, you're such an idiot. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna go ahead and wrap this uh, episode up. We're just over an hour. Um, I want to thank our panelists for coming. You guys and, are so awesome. Uh, just real quick, we'll uh, we'll let you know who they are. We have, in no particular order, David Brady.
4: No particular order. <laughs> But I'm first.
0: Yeah. Avdi Grimm. Happy hacking. Uh, James Edward Gray. I
3: love you guys. Group
2: hug.
4: Yay!
0: <laughs> and Josh Susser. It's fun as always. Yeah, and I'm Charles Wood. Now, there are a few things that you're probably going to want to know. First off, there are links to most of the things we talked about at rubyrogues.com. So if you're trying to figure out what's going on there, um, you can go to rubyrogues.com, look at the show notes, and get all the information. Um, we also had uh, Derek Pryor, I think his name is uh, he, he actually compiled All of our um, picks into a, a gist on GitHub And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes As well, so if you're oh, very cool. If you don't want to, you know, page through the different uh, Picks Then you can just go look at his list We may add a list like that to the site And I'll probably talk to him about that But
3: We've got fans! How freaking cool is that?
0: Yeah It is freaking cool um, you can also get this in iTunes. So uh, just go to iTunes, do a search for Ruby Rogues. We come right up to the top. Um, and leave us a review if you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, I'm getting a lot of emails and tweets uh, about the podcast. And so by all means, you know, you can, uh, you know, keep those coming. And, and I'm, I need to share more of those with the, the panelists. But, you know, it's, it, it's just a lot of fun to hear about that. And I've also had a lot of people adding me on Google And I don't know if you guys have as well. But there are people that I don't know That I'm pretty sure are listening to this podcast um, So drop drop me a note Or drop the other panelists a note And, and just let them yeah. know Hey, I'm following you Or I'm adding you to a circle And I'm enjoying the podcast I, I think we'd all appreciate that
4: Agreed, agreed Oh, oh because I have ADD I forgot to mention at the beginning of the show That I also do the ADD casts uh, thing with Pat Maddox I'm just throwing that out there So that Pat doesn't go Dude, are we still doing that? <laughs> no I just, I just forgot to mention that
0: yeah, and that that is actually a fun show to listen to. It's uh, about half of it's about code, and the other half is about whatever shiny that floats <laughs> by them. So
4: yeah, yeah, half of it's crap.
0: But uh, yeah, anyway. So uh, just thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week. Um, it will either be a live show from Lone Star RubyConf, um, in which some of us will be there and some of us won't, and or if if not that, then we will be doing an episode on becoming a better developer. So uh, look forward to that, and we'll catch you next week.
3: Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.